Uh, today is the first Sunday of the month, and so we will have a time of communion at the close of our message. But let's jump right in. If you have a Bible with you today, you're going to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 with me. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to loan you one. The normal spiel, you just have to raise your hand real high, and the guys will be happy to get you one so you can follow along. Uh, we are slow crawling through chapter 3. Uh, We will, Lord willing, finish uh, right before Christmas, so the next two Sundays will remain in 2 Peter 3. Today, I'm going to be one verse. It's a one-verse Sunday for us. It's been a while since we had one of these, but verse 10 of 2 Peter 3, there's a lot going on, and so we want to spend some time, uh, just give it some attention, I believe, that it deserves, and some time to unpack it together. Again, it's Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10 this morning. I entitled the message, really just taken right out of the text, the day of the Lord. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what the day of the Lord is and what it means, uh, not just for Peter's original audience, but what, is, what does it mean for us today as we follow the Lord and love Jesus? So if you're there with me, I invite you to stand as we read the word of God in honor of the Lord and his word. It's just one verse, but again, there's a lot going on. Peter pens for us, of course, inspired by the spirit of God. He says, but the day of the Lord will come. And how will it come? As a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat and both the earth And the works that are in it, Peter tells us they will be consumed or they will be burned up. So one verse, pausing there. Josh prayed for us. When you take a moment, greet a neighbor, welcome back some folks that were traveling and uh, introduce yourself to somebody new and then you can have a seat. Well, church family, if we are going to be good students of the scriptures, And my hope and prayer is that that we are and that that's what we want. That's our our aim to be those that rightly divide the word of truth. Those of us would be good Bereans to, uh, you know, to search the scriptures. Uh, If if we're going to be good students of the Bible, then by default, we're going to be students of prophecy. Uh, It has been said that one third, a third of the scripture deals with prophecy. Some would argue that number and say maybe a quarter, but regardless, it it is a big part. And it's an important part of the word of God. As many of you have been with us, we've been journeying through 2 Peter and we've been taking some time in 2 Peter 3. And we noted together that God reveals himself in his creation. It was one of the things that Peter put forth as an argument against the scoffers who were mocking against the word of God, coming against the fact that Christ was coming back again. And so he puts forth really beginning at the beginning at the book of Genesis. And and we were reminded of God's creation. And and we took some time as we were studying uh, to remind ourselves that creation in itself testifies of a creator. And that creation contains, if you will, uh, God's signature. Maybe you've heard it said that God's fingerprints are all over his creation. 
the psalmist in Psalm 1, or Psalm 19, excuse me, verse 1 would uh, phrase it this way, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's the ESV version. And so God reveals himself through his creation. But, but another way that God has revealed himself is through prophecy. And fulfilled prophecy, as we read it today, uh, is another proof, one more proof of the existence of God. It's, it's proof of the divine inspiration of the word of God, which we believe in. It's proof of, of God's divine revelation that he is revealing himself through the pages of scripture. Speaking to Isaiah, the prophet, God declares through the prophet and recorded for us in chapter 46 verses nine through 10 it says, remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And so the Lord puts forth uh, a testimony even of himself declaring that, uh, you know, his uh, deity, that God is God by declaring the things that have yet to happen. And so through creation, God reveals himself through prophecy. God has revealed himself. And what's interesting is that God, that God weaves, if you will, that the, into the tapestry of his creation in, integrated within creation itself is the promise of a redeemer. If you've been in church for a while, you, you've heard maybe the phrase, the scarlet thread of the gospel that Jesus can be seen in every book of the Bible. God has placed, if you will, embedded from the beginning and all through the scriptures, this prophetic Easter egg or Easter eggs, if you will. Imagery and analogy and allegory and foreshadows of a promised savior. Even in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, it's known by a, a fancy term called the proto evangelum. It's a compound word, proto meaning first, like prototype, the first. And uh, evangelum, where we get the word good news or evangelism from, the gospel. In Genesis three fifteen, you can um, just make a note and you read that later, but it, it's God's declaration to the serpent. The seed is going to have enmity against the seed of the woman, but her seed will bruise his head. And so it's, it's the first mentioning, the hinting of a, of a savior to come. And then all throughout the scriptures, God speaks forth the future. It's a forth telling and a foretelling. And, and depending on, on how those scriptures and prophecies are counted, because some of them are repeated, but one generally accepted number lists 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament. That's just the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, 578 of them. So 1,817 specific prophecies 
that God has declared. And, and, and many Bible scholars agree that there are over 300 Bible prophecies about the birth and the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And some would even count up to 500. On uh, Christmas Eve, as we gather together over in Udama, the Ishikawa City Hall, uh, we're going to look at some of those prophecies of a hope that was promised, of a hope that uh, the nations were, the nation of Israel and nations are waiting for, and a hope that's available for us today. But prophecy after prophecy, prediction after prediction, even in the birth of Christ, where he was born and how he's going to be born and what was going to happen. All of those things have been fulfilled. And there are hundreds more when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ, that Christ is coming back. And this church family is our glorious hope. It is a hope that we wait for. It is a hope that we anticipate. It's a hope that we pray for. And we, we should be looking for. And Jesus himself promised that he would come back for us. In John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And I will take you. I will bring you with me. And that you will be with me. That where I am, you will also be. And so this is something that we as a church and we as Christians need to make sure we understand. And Peter has been telling us, Peter's been telling his original audience that, that the return of Christ is going to mean something very serious and something very sobering. And it's going to mean something very serious and sobering, but it's going to mean something very different for two different groups. It's going to mean judgment and sorrow for those who do not know and reject the Lord as Savior. However, it's going to mean joy. And it's going to mean the, the final installment of our salvation for those of us who have received Jesus Christ as our Lord. That we do truly know him as our Savior. This morning, our, our study is going to look a little different than usual. Because verse 10 is purely informational. Peter is stating the facts of the future. Now, based upon his assertion, he's going to bring us into a, a variety, an array of different application, beginning at verse 11, which we'll look at next week, where he says, therefore, since these things, and then he says in verse 13, nevertheless, and so he'll bring us to application, and we'll consider that again next week, but our aim today and I do believe it's important for us is to understand the terms that Peter is using and what do they mean? And so that's why we're camping on verse 10. Again, a little different for us in that it's purely informational things for us to know things for us to be reminded of reinforced in. So I draw your attention back to verse 10 and we're going to just pull this verse apart. We begin with, well, that contrast it's a conjunction. He says, but the day of the Lord. It's a contrast. It's a conjunction he begins with, at least for us, he, we're beginning here. He's continuing his thought, but Peter uses a lot of them. 
but therefore, for this reason, for when, nevertheless. And as we've been making our way through Second Peter, and as you make your way through the Bible from time to time, I think it's, it's good for us to remember when we come across these type of words, these type of phrases, to pause when we read them and ask, uh, what's, what's being contrasted here? What's the context of this verse, this text that we're reading, uh, the previous text, what's going on that he's making either this conclusion or this contrast or, or whatever it may be. And so we begin there with, with that word, but it's a contrast. And what is he contrasting? You might remember that the previous passage, he has told us that God, well, some people, let me make sure phrase it that way in their perspective of what's been happening and the promises of God as it relates to time, that God is delayed. And, and, and people then misjudge the purposes of God or the timing of God or the word of God. They came to the wrong conclusion. Everything seems to be the same. Therefore, you can't trust the Lord. God's not true to his word. And Peter makes an argument and that the apparent delay, first of all, our sense of timing is not right. God's days and time isn't the same as our days and time. That was one thing that he told us, but the apparent delay, the, the observed delay of Christ's return really is an act of God's kindness. That he doesn't want anybody to perish outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we looked at that and said, okay, his, his apparent delay, it's by design. That God has a purpose for his pause. And what is that purpose? You and me, your parents, your family, your friends, your spouses, people in your life, in your community that don't know Jesus yet. God's purpose has a pause or God's pause has a purpose. Excuse me. And that is so that people will get saved. And so what's the contrast? The contrast is this. Yes, God is willing to wait, but his waiting will end without warning. God is gracious. God is patient. God is long suffering. But there'll be a day where suddenly the bell will ring pencils down. Uh, we're going. And God hasn't revealed when. And it's going to happen unexpectedly. And so Peter makes this contrast of time and purpose. He says, but the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord. So we're going we're gonna to camp here for a moment. There are two very important phrases that Peter uses and he puts them together. The day of the Lord is one of them. And as a thief in the night is the, is the second one. And again, we want to make sure what, what is he talking about? What do you mean, Peter, by the day of the Lord? Well, that phrase is found in 24 Bible verses. Exactly as that the day of the Lord. It's found 20 times in the old Testament. It's found four times in the new Testament. And then there's variations 
For example, one of them, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's found in the book of Revelation. And so slightly different. But this very important phrase appearing 20 times in the Old Testament amongst the the books of the prophets. Prevalent amongst the Old Testament prophets using this phrase. And for them, it pointed to a future event. It points to a future time frame. And by the way, we need to understand that even though it's the phrase, the day of the Lord, it's not necessarily referring to just a single day, like a, like a 24 hour period, but rather it is a, an event. It is a time of divine intervention where God steps into the, the course of this world. And he brings about and he orchestrates judgment and punishment through various means to accomplish his promised purposes. And as the case is with many Bible prophecies, they have a a twofold fulfillment. That for the prophets in the Old Testament, as they look to the future, Uh, God revealing what was going to happen. There was a a, a near fulfillment, if you will. For them, it was still future. But in terms of history, in terms of time, as we read it, we say, wow, that that happened. Destruction from the Babylonians, from the Assyrians. But there's also a, a far fulfillment, if you will. There's a partial and then there will be a complete And this phrase, the day of the Lord is often used in that same sense. It's unique. It's significant. It's also referred to as that day. So unique that Isaiah just says that day and he uses it 45 times in his letter alone. And so, as I mentioned, many of these prophecies find a a partial completion in the days of the kingdom of Israel, but they also hold a a future, a yet to be fulfilled aspect, even for us. Let Let me just share a couple of them with you. These Old Testament passages where the day of the Lord is used in Zephaniah chapter one. If you want to turn there, you can. If you don't know where Zephaniah is, you can use your Bible index Unless you have an electronic device, you can just tab right over. Zephaniah 1, of course, it's up on the screen as well, and I'll read it to you. The great day of the Lord. There it is. The day of the Lord. The great day of the Lord. Zephaniah says is near. It is near and it hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. And there are mighty men that will cry out, that this day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and the alarm. It's a day against the fortified cities and against the high towers. And so there in Zephaniah, using that same phrase, and you notice with me what the day of the Lord is associated with. It's, it's doomy and gloomy. 
It's dark in its devastation. It's distress. It's trouble. It's a day of wrath. And interestingly, it's a day that's marked by a trumpet and an alarm, a sound. And it's against fortified cities, against high towers. And so Zephaniah brings forth this prophecy of the day of the Lord. Uh, Another Old Testament prophet. These are minor prophets, not that they're any less than the majors, but just their books are shorter. Obadiah. Obadiah chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Prophet Obadiah says that the day of the Lord is upon all the nations. Guess what? It's also near. And as you have done, it shall be done to you. There's a retribution. Obadiah uses the phrase a reprisal. A reprisal will be returned upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. The idea of drinking is the idea of, of, of wrath and, and pouring into the wrath of the pouring out and receiving of wrath. But on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance. There shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall, shall possess their possessions. But then he says, the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph, a flame. The house of Esau shall be stubble. And they shall kindle them and devour them. And no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. And so again, we read these prophecies and like, okay, what does that mean? Well, it meant something for them as Obadiah is bringing this word against the nation of Israel. And God then pouring out and bringing judgment through enemy nations at that time. But it also still speaks of a future wrath and a future deliverance. You know, and often coupled with the warnings is the fact that it's near. We're going to see next week that often coupled with the warnings is an exhortation for us to work, to be busy about the father's business. That it's not just a park and wait and see and, Let's go huddle somewhere and just wait until the Lord returns. But that God has a a job for us to do. But here we see it's retribution against those who've turned against the Lord. Here's another one. This will be our last one. It's Joel. Prophet Joel. Chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. Blow the trumpet in Zion and the sound and alarm in my holy mountain and let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming and it is at hand. It's a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds that spread over the mountains. Excuse me. A people have come great and strong, the like of whom has never been. Nor will there ever be such after them, for, for even for many successive generations. The, fower, the fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns, and the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. And so Joel's descriptor, much like um, Zephaniah's, 
darkness and gloom. And he leads with, there's a trumpet, there's a sound of an alarm. But notice he also mentions fire and flames and destruction. It's the same imagery that Peter now is employing here. And the New Testament author is not just Peter, but they use the same phrase, the day of the Lord. And I bring these things up to you again for us to understand that when they do, when the New Testament writers do, they're not describing a past event. They're not including this phrase and saying, wow, look how God fulfilled these things with the children of Israel and how he brought enemy nations against them. And, and look what God did in that day of the Lord. They use the same phrase and they're speaking and they write about a future event. And so there's a part where, yeah, it was fulfilled in the past, but there is a very important part church family that it's still yet to be fulfilled. And the elements and the aspects are the same. It is described as a day of gloom, a day of wrath, a day of darkness, a day of devastation. It is a day and a time of destruction by fire. And the other parallel is it's also a dual picture. It's a picture of God who judges the sinner, who judges the ungodly, and yet at the same time saves his people holds a remnant, preserves those who know and love him. What's another parallel? There's an unmistakable trumpeting. There's an alarm that sounded, something signaling the commencement of this particular event. For some of you, that's part of your world. This is God's version of your morning reveille. Or the noon chime bell in the villages if you, you know, live out in town in your community. And so what is this day of the Lord? You know, let's recap. It's, it's not a literal day. It's not a 24-hour day, but rather it's a, an event or a series of events. It's a whole that's made up of different parts. You can kind of think of it like the Super Bowl. At least that's the way that I think of it. The Super Bowl in itself is an event. And of course, it's on a day, but, but just track with me. The Super Bowl is an event, but within it, there are other events that make up the entirety of what we call the Super Bowl. Included in that is the coin toss. Included in that is the kickoff. Included in that are the timed quarters. Included in that is, uh, is the halftime show that we then turn off and, you know, Included in that are two-minute warnings. And, and then the end of the game, where a winner is declared, a winner is decided, and a celebration ensues for the victor and sadness for the losing team. The day of the Lord is a time when God will enter into the course of this present world as he did in the past. And he will bring about his promises concerning the world and judgment 
and also concerning us as the church. And so this is just information. What does it all mean? Very simply, I'm going to just restate or state something we all know. Hopefully we know Jesus Christ is coming back and I'm going to qualify it soon. And he's going to judge the world. For us, the end is already decided. Jesus won. We can read the end in the book of Revelation and realize we win. There is a, a, a victory parade and celebration that awaits us, that is promised to us. And the day of the Lord for the Christian then is a day then of anticipation, of hope, of celebration, of joy, of victory of the final deposit of our salvation. We get to experience in fullness, all that's been promised to us. But the day of the Lord for the non-Christian looks very, very different. It is a day of dread. It is a day of despair. It is a day of devastation. The day of the Lord. What does he tell us that this day of the Lord, what's going to happen? Again, notice he didn't say, well, it's already, it's already happened. He doesn't go back to the Old Testament and say, let's review this and see how God did these things. He says, it will come. That's future tense. It's going to happen. It will come. And how will it come? He says, it's going to come as a thief in the night. First of all, I, I want you to note with me how many times he uses the word will in verse 10 alone. It will come, it will pass, it will melt, it will be burned. This is not a hypothetical. This isn't a theoretical, like, let's, let's consider what might happen. This is not an idle threat. You know, this isn't God counting to 10, like, all right, you better act up or. No, this is a promise. This is something that's going to happen. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. On, on Wednesday nights, we have our different connect groups and the group that uh, I'm a part of, we're going through the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 17, we see Paul preaching to this community. And, and, he, and he says to them in verses 30 and 31, truly these times of ignorance, God has overlooked. And the idea that, that people didn't, they weren't aware, they weren't, the gospel hadn't come forth of the plan of redemption. But Jesus Christ came and the gospel goes forth and, and Paul continues and he says, but now, but now God commands that all men everywhere, that everybody would come to repent. He says, why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. There'll be a time in which God is going to judge the world in righteousness. And how? By the man whom he's ordained. That Jesus Christ is coming back. And he has given assurance of this to all by the resurrection, by the raising him, raising him from the dead. And so we, we read these things that, okay, the day of the Lord, 
is going to come. There's a sense in which it's, it came for God's people before, but there's a, a, a further fulfillment of this prophecy that means something for you and for me today, that Jesus Christ is coming back. Again, I'm going to use the word soon. It's part of the idea of a thief in the night. There's an eminence to his return. That was true for the original audience. It was true for Peter. It was true for Paul. It was true for the first century church. It was true for our great grandparents. Unless we become like the scoffer and say, well, it just, it just continues on. We remember God's timing is not our timing. A thousand years is a day for him. He's not in a hurry. In fact, I'm grateful that the Lord didn't come back 25 years ago, 27 years ago for me. I, I didn't know the Lord back then. The natural question can be, well, when, when is this going to happen then? And it's a question the disciples asked Jesus, the same question in Matthew chapter 24. They're leaving the city. Somehow the disciples are like, man, look at this temple. Look at these stones. They're amazing. And the Lord then turns to them and says something really sobering and shocking. He says, uh, I'm going to tell you something, my paraphrase, that's going to blow your mind. One stone will not repaint upon another. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? But the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, Jesus foretells this. He prophesies this. And so they go out to the Mount of Olives and, and the disciples are curious. And so they basically ask him a compound question. It's one question with three parts to it. They say, well, t tell us then, when, when are these things going to happen? Like, what will be the sign of your coming? And, and what will be the sign of the end of the age? And in Matthew 24, Jesus then sits and he answers, beginning, he answers those questions, 24 and 25, Matthew 24 and 25. Beginning with first, he leads with a warning. He says, take heed that no one deceive you. And there's usually two applications by default. When we begin to talk about eschatology, end times, Christ's return, there's two that are, that are always coupled or prevalent. One is don't be deceived. Now we talked before, like it, it, we don't want to be ignorant about these things. And sadly, a great part of church and churches and sometimes people I talk to, they, they have no clue. And so we, we don't want to be in that category. We want to be informed. We want to understand what does the word of God say? And so we, we don't want to be deceived. This counterfeit spirituality, right? Many false prophets will arise and false Christ and false messiahs. And the other application, which we'll get to, but I'll just give it to you now is, by default, always, regardless of your eschatology, right? regardless of if you believe in the rapture before, in the middle, or at the end, or it, the default application, though, is be ready. Be prepared. So he begins with, take heed that no one deceive you. Now it's the same that Peter wrote, you remember? Peter almost follows the pattern here in 2 Peter of, of Matthew 24, the things that he says. But it would make sense because Peter took that class. 
right? He took the original eschatology 101 with Jesus himself as the professor up there on the Mount of Olives. And so no wonder he's going to use the same phrases and the same terminology and the same imagery. I mean, he's being obedient to what Jesus said, go and teach them all that I've commanded you. Now, Jesus goes on to describe deception. Jesus goes on to describe destruction, disease, wars, and rumors of wars, a false spirituality, false teachers, and false prophets, and people claiming to be the Messiah that aren't. He goes on to talk about a time when there's going to be hatred towards those who love Christ and follow Christ, a lack of love, a growing lawlessness. And then he tells them uh, of a general gloomy forecast of the world. And then he begins with very specific events that will take place. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel, the prophet, which again, Jesus speaking of that event that happened in the Daniel's day, but it, he speaks of it as future. And so once again, a, a prophecy that's been partially fulfilled and one yet to be fulfilled as well. And he lays out, and if you read it, it's, it's a terrifying scene. The series of events that will take place. Judgment and wrath and uh, catastrophe, cosmic catastrophe. And then after doing so, he lays it all out. He then specifically comes back to answer the question, when will it happen? And he gives them the answer. Here's what he says of that day. And of that hour, no one knows. And so he basically says, you're not going to know. So don't, don't waste time trying to figure it out. What is the emphasis for us? The emphasis then is well, being prepared. That's the emphasis, not trying to postulate the day, the hour of his return, some kind of, you know, figure out the calculations. The Lord says, you don't need to bother with that. Here's your focus, Christ follower. Keep your eyes on me. Be prepared, be ready. And and he uses the example of judgment in Noah's day, just as Peter used And again, we understand that's where Peter got it from. And guess what? Jesus uses the exact same phrase as a thief in the night. And he uses that phrase to illustrate and amplify and bring emphasis to the fact of the imminency, imminency, the urgency. What's the word I'm looking for? Eminent. Thank you. The eminency of his return and the importance of our readiness. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 24, 42 through 44. He says, watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched, not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, what's the emphasis? You also be ready. For the son of man, so here's the simile. What's he talking about? He's talking about himself. For the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's talking about himself in what regard? He's already there. So he's not talking about his birth. 
It's he himself who's declaring these things. He's talking about his second coming, his return. And so what does that phrase as a thief in the night mean? First of all, it's a really interesting analogy he uses, right? Because generally a thief, a thief in the night is not usually a good thing. We wouldn't put that in the category of like, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Anybody ever been robbed? Ever been? I've been robbed twice. One time in college, someone broke into our apartment and it's unsettling. And we were in college, we had nothing. Like, I, you know, half a cabinet of top ramen and a freezer of burritos. But it's unsettling. You walked in and then our side door was, well, the glass thing was smashed in. And, and one time actually here. And it wasn't really a break-in because we live in Okinawa. We just, we leave our car unlocked. Sometimes we just leave it running, right? <laughs> Sense of security that we have here. We just, we left our car unlocked and unfortunately we forgot we left a wallet and money in there and no one broke in. They just opened the door, <laughs> took, took the money. But it was still shocking. Like in Okinawa, our, our, our paradise has been corrupted. But again, the point of the illustration, this thief in the night, although it's an unusual one, it, it's to emphasize the unexpected. The unexpected. It's an event without warning. Imminent. And unannounced. And so again, it, it, it's review. Maybe it's Christianity 101 for us. What, what, what is Peter wanting us to know? What's the fact that he's laying out by using this phrase? Well, the day of the Lord will come. Jesus Christ is coming. It's imminent. And the idea is that, well, the return of Christ can happen at any time. Not only is it soon, I believe it's soon, but it can happen at any time. You guys remember um, there was this trend <clears throat> and it was really popular even before COVID and be all that happened where there was these pop-up flash mobs. You remember that? Some random public place like a mall or a train station or whatever, just a group of people would suddenly start dancing, suddenly start singing, suddenly, you know, this growing orchestra would be one person then the next person and then one by one it just seemed like random people from the crowd right begin to join them it's an interesting thing right trend that happened and, and people that were apart or nearby they'd often they'd seem confused like what's going on but then greatly surprised and often it was entertaining so they'd be blessed right? but what appeared to be super random at first in, in reality, was very well rehearsed and choreographed. And versions of that started happening in weddings, right? Where the bridal party and the groomsmen, all of a sudden, they'd start breaking out and dances are coming down the line. Did anybody do that at your wedding? Did you guys do that, Travis, Katie? You guys do that? No. Or the, you know, the mother, the mother-son dance. Start off real slow and all of a sudden they would, I wanted Christy and Noah to do that start doing breakdancing the robot. That'd be kind of cool. Right? <laughs> the, the Bible says there, there's going to be a, a spiritual flash mob one day. And it's going to happen suddenly. 
but it's really well rehearsed, if you will. It, it's going to execute exactly how God wants it to go. And all of the plans and all of the parts and all of the, the pieces are going to fall exactly in place as God has designed it. Now, we don't know exactly when that's going to happen. But as believers, as we read the word of God today, we know it's going to happen. Right? We're not completely in the dark. We're not, we're not to be uninformed or ignorant of the fact that it's going to happen. We don't, we don't know when. We don't know the exact hour. Again, that's not for us to know. But Jesus gave us a general forecast of the coming event. What will the general forecast of the world's um, uh, weather look like, if you will? Well, he told us, as in the days of Noah. And the Bible talks about a lawlessness and the love of many growing cold. And people departing from the faith. Paul writing to Timothy gives us this list, a descriptor of all these things that are going to happen. You know, the apostle Paul actually uses the same phrase in first Thessalonians five. Oh, I got to speed this up. All right. Turn, turn there real quick. First Thessalonians five. Just a couple of books back. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, this is Paul writing now to the church in Thessalonica. He says, verse 1, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, there's the same phrase, so comes as a thief in the night. So Peter and Paul are saying the same thing. Paul gives us some additional inf- insight. He says, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Another contrast, but you brethren, you church family, you're not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief for you are sons and daughters of the light and of the day were not of the night nor of darkness. Here's his conclusion. Therefore, let us not sleep. The idea is let's not slack. Let's not be lazy. Let's not be ignorant as others are. Others do, but default application. Let us watch. Let us be sober. And so what, what are we called to do in response to these things that we're made aware of? And Peter will bring us into the same application. Well, we get a little bit today. What are we to do? We're, we're to be awake. We're to be mindful. We're to pay attention. We're to be aware that this is happening. And we're to be ready. So let me just rephrase it. If, if it's true that Christ is coming back soon and that Christ can come back at any time, here, here's, a, here's a question for us to entertain. If that is true, and the Bible says so, are you ready? If Jesus Christ were to come back today, would you be ready? You can turn back to uh, 2 Peter. 
He goes on to say the rest of that verse in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And so there we have uh, the element of, of noise again, of a trumpet sounding. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And so what, what is going to happen when this happens? Peter tells us what's going to happen to this present world. And then that's his focus. He's talking about earth and the things of earth and even the things of heaven. And he uses the word will. It's going to happen. The, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The, the elements will melt with a fervent heat. The earth and the works that are in it, they're going to be burned up. This ties us back to verse 7 where Peter says, and the present world is reserved for fire. God destroyed the earth one time with a flood. He's going to destroy the world again, not with a flood, but with a fire. And, and as we read these things, I, I don't know that we can fathom the, the, its entirety of, the, of, of what it means. Because Peter seems to be describing the destruction of the universe as we know it. And it's going to be on an unprecedented level, obviously. The intensity of this, the, the furiousness of this, beyond anything that we could imagine. You know, we watched the, the news and when the Maui fires happened, we, we saw like the devastation and the loss of life and it's tragic, it's shocking, it's sobering. The intensity of the heat and how it melted things. The fire of God's judgment will be infinitely worse. And the original Greek word there for, for melt, it means to be loosed. And so some suggest this is a picture of a divine atomic bomb. That God who holds all things together, all the atoms and the elements and the subatomic particles of the universe, that he's going to release his hold. And that's going to create this atomic, nuclear, cosmic catastrophe. And we read these things and they're sobering, but remember for us, Bible prophecy is not written to scare us. I need to qualify that. I think it's good to cultivate a healthy fear of God, but it is to prepare us. And, and along with that, it's to prompt us to share the gospel so that people do not perish. Next week, we'll consider the verses where Peter ushers us into application. Therefore, what do we do in light of this truth, in light of these things that are going to happen? Peter's already told us what happens to the mocker and the scoffer who reject the truth of the Lord, right? They are utterly perish in their own cor corruption. The question that remains though is what happens to us? We know what happens to the earth. We know what happens to the heavens. What happens to us? And so I want to invite you to come back. It's an important part of the message. Peter's going to assure us that our outlook can be very different because our outcome is very different.